Uh, Ashley Cooper drove V8 supercars. Uh, in 2008, he was involved in a terrible crash in Adelaide, suffered severe internal injuries and brain swelling. Uh, two days after the crash, his family decided to turn off the life support system, uh, and he died, leaving behind a wife and two young children. It was tragic, uh, but at another level, it was a wonderful day, at least for some people, because Ashley Cooper was a registered organ donor, and his death meant seven other lives were saved. Heart, lung, two kidneys, pancreas, and a further two people, including a seven-year-old child, were uh, saved because they received part of his liver. Ashley's father told Channel 10 News he couldn't be prouder of his son. He said finding out that one of those saved was a young child with only days to live uh, saving that young child's life and allowing them to live a normal life for whatever time was just something very, very special to us. If Ashley Cooper hadn't died, those people may not be alive today. One died so that others might live. Uh, we see the same thing in these verses here about Jesus. Uh, he's headed for the cross. The clock is ticking on the last days of his life. He knows it's coming. But he doesn't try to escape. Ashley Cooper's death was a tragic accident. He would, avoid it, he would have avoided it if he could, but with Jesus it's different. He heads towards his death fully aware of what's coming. He goes anyway. Uh, and he knows that death will be the climax. Out of all the amazing things he's done so far, his death will be the most amazing yet. Do you see it there in verse 23? He says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And a few verses on in verse 32, he describes his death as being lifted up or exalted from the earth. Uh, physically lifted up, but also sort of metaphorically lifted up, as in exalted. Uh, he's describing his crucifixion. He's going to go out with a bang, a death that will be the hour of his greatest triumph. It probably sounded bizarre to those who were hearing it, and yet it has proved true. Uh, the death of Jesus marks the greatest event in history. The greatest event in history. Uh, if you Google greatest event or most significant event in history, you'll get some of these. The Industrial Revolution, uh, World War II, the discovery of penicillin, the invention of modern electronics. And yet, I'd argue that the death of Jesus is greater than all of those in terms of its significance. Uh, it's been felt not just around the world, but down through the ages. In fact, we're still celebrating it, millions and millions of people. Uh, we're still celebrating and living with the results. The hour of his glory. We get a picture of what's behind all the fuss with what Jesus says next in verse 24. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. It's a truth from farming. At the end of a crop, the farmer would store a few bags of seed uh, away. He could sell everything, but these few bags are his investment, his future, a small amount kept so that much more might be produced. New season rolls around, he sows those few bags 
And if he's done it right and the rain falls at the right time, the, the seeds will germinate, a new plant will grow out of each seed. One seed will shrivel and die, but it'll produce a plant that grows, flowers, fruits, and then produces seeds by the thousands sometimes. And the farmer gets the return on his investment, small amount in, huge amount out. But all of that can only happen when one seed dies. It's that idea we began with. One dies so that many might live. But of course Jesus isn't just talking about seeds, he's talking about himself. His dying will be the means by which many will live. As far as John's Gospel goes, back in chapter 1 we got a hint when John the Baptist looked at Jesus and said, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A sacrificial Lamb who deals with sin. But it's when we go to Isaiah 52 and 53 that we find out some more details about what's going on. It's amazing, really. We think about these words written 600 years before Jesus came, but it was a promise that God would send a servant, someone who would deal with sin and rebellion that separated us from God. In Isaiah's time, in fact, even at the time of Jesus, God accepted animal sacrifices to overlook sin. But sacrifices of some dumb animal was never going to remove the guilt of humanity, could never take the punishment for people. And so here God promises to send a servant. And look at how he describes him, verse 13 of 52. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just like Jesus said about himself, that he'd be glorified when he was lifted up on a cross. But Isaiah goes on to make things clear, just in case we were thinking it would be the sort of exaltation of some kingly crown. Verse 14 he says, Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. He's vividly prophesying about the suffering Jesus would endure on the cross. And as we move into chapter 53, uh, Isaiah explains that the servant will achieve all of this through suffering. Verse 4. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. Uh, but he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God's justice demands sin be punished. Nothing else will do, yet in his great love he accepts the punishment of Jesus in our place. And so justice is satisfied. One picture that's sometimes used is that of a judge whose son or daughter is brought before him for sentencing. The child is guilty, justice demands a heavy penalty, but in love he wants to protect her. And so he issues the sentence, thousands of dollars in fines. The daughter sobs, but the judge pulls out his checkbook, writes out a check for the full amount and offers it to the daughter. 
Uh, The offer shows justice and the offer shows love. Uh, And she walks free. All she needs to do is accept it. And it's like that with the death of Jesus. God demands a price, but then he pays it in the death of his son. Uh, And that's how one death can lead to life for many. And that's why Jesus calls it the hour of his glory. Even though he knows what sort of anguish and pain is coming, it's the glory of a, a deadly, dangerous rescue mission. That's why it's glorious. And as Jesus thinks about what lies ahead, what gives him courage to face it all is knowing what the end result will be, what it will achieve. Look at what he says in verse 31. Now is the time, now is the hour for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. As he looks into the future, there's two things that uh, he is looking forward to. Two reasons his death is glorious. Firstly, the prince of this world will be driven out. And secondly, he'll draw all men to himself. Uh, The prince of this world, that's Satan. Uh, His goal since the beginning had been for Jesus to be destroyed, to be removed. He thinks he's won. But the incredible irony is that what he thinks is his greatest victory is actually his complete defeat and the nails that are hammered into Jesus' hands and feet are actually nails hammered into Satan's coffin. And the reason? Because it's in Jesus' death that death is destroyed. Death had been Satan's greatest ally, his greatest weapon, and yet Jesus smashes it. It's wonderful, glorious good news uh, that the prince of this world will be driven out. Uh, But if you ask most Aussies what they think about the events of Easter, most of them will say, well, so what? What's it got to do with me? That was a long time ago. Uh, Well, Jesus answers that question in the second thing he's looking forward to there in verse 32. He'll draw all men to himself. What's he mean by that? Well, he's not just thinking of the the dozens, the the dozens who stand around the foot of the cross on uh, on that Friday. But he's thinking of the millions since, the millions uh, who've read, investigated that event ever since, who've peered over the shoulders of the eyewitnesses who recorded it and recognised in the midst of all that suffering a glorious act, an act of eternal significance, a rescue mission, something that brings life and forgiveness and salvation and, and they accept it as the gift that it's offered. And Jesus can foresee all of that. And and, and he says, I'm going to draw all men to myself. It's an invitation that's still there. He's still drawing people to himself with an outstretched hand and a signed check and the offer of a penalty paid in full. And all you need to do is take it. Well, how do you do that? Well, Jesus gives us a couple of hints here as well. Uh, Back up in verse 25. He's talking about the many seeds who will live. And then he says in verse 25, the man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So the first step to gaining life from the death of Jesus, the the first step towards drawing 
uh, around Jesus is to hate your life in this world. That's a pretty strong sort of phrase, isn't it? But what Jesus is saying is you need to recognise that your life without Jesus, life as it currently stands without Jesus, is wrong, it's incomplete, it's, it's unsatisfactory, it's dangerous, it's headed for judgement. That's what it means to hate this life. People who live without Jesus are like cut flowers in a vase. They look like they're alive, but they're actually gradually dying. Recognise you're helpless and hopeless in the face of death. Cling to the one who can do something about it. It's only when we follow Jesus that we become joined to the source of life, like flowers whose roots go down to the moisture. And we can begin to live the way we were designed. That's what it means to keep your life. Hate, hate your life in this world, keep it for eternity. The flip side, if you ignore the offer of Jesus, if instead you love the life that you're currently living, life without Jesus, if you refuse to recognise death and judgement that's coming, and in your pride think, no, I'll be right, I can deal with it myself, if that's you, then the result is you'll lose your life for eternity. You'll lose that life that you want to cling to. Jesus instead calls us to hate life in this world, the life that's lived without Jesus, and instead to long for the true, rich, full life Jesus offers. What's that life like? Well, look at verse 26. It's about serving and following Jesus. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honour the one who serves me. In some ways, they're pretty nice words, aren't they? My father will honour the one who serves me, but they're also scary words. Because think about where Jesus is headed. He's headed for a cross, and he's the one who says, follow me. Uh, he's headed for sacrifice, for a costly laying down of his life for others. It's an invitation that's hard to sugarcoat, really, isn't it? Follow me. Uh, Jesus doesn't promise that life is going to be easy when we follow him. In another place, Luke chapter 9, verse 23, he says, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Uh, denying yourself as you follow Jesus. It, it won't be easy, but many of us here can uh, say that it's, it's true and it's good and it's right, that sort of life. It's a life that we were made for. It's a life with joy and satisfaction. It may not be easy, but it's a good one. Uh, let me tell you about a guy called Ernest Shackleton. He was a famous Irish explorer early last century, a man of incredible courage, a vision and leadership and strength. Uh, on his 1914 Antarctic ex, uh, expedition, his ship, the Endurance, became trapped in ice and was destroyed. Uh, Shackleton led his men to refuge on Elephant Island uh, before heading across 1,200 kilometres of open Antarctic Ocean uh, to South Georgia Island with five other men in a small open boat. Uh, two weeks in horrible conditions. Uh, they arrived on one side of the island, then they had to cross the island, severe and mountainous. They were the first group ever to cross the island. Uh, 
they finally reached a whaling station on the other side. They found a ship and were eventually rescued. And every man from the endurance, from the ship, survived the ordeal over 22 months. What a leader to follow. Now, that's someone worth following. Uh, the story is told, though, that when he was actually searching for a crew for that expedition, he, he placed an ad in a London newspaper, and the ad said this, Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honour and recognition in case of success. It's not much of a sales pitch, is it? I'm pretty sure he didn't check that with a marketing executive uh, before he placed the ad. Who on earth would apply for an ad like that? Well, there were actually nearly 5,000 applicants who found that ad irresistible. And Jesus is a leader, let's be honest, who has far more to offer than Shackleton. Shackleton was actually a failure. He, he never actually made it to the South Pole. He died in 1922 trying to sail around the South Pole. But Jesus is a leader who is worth following. He's a winner. He's made it through death and out the other side he's victorious. Uh, he's attractive. He is a wonderful person to give your life to follow. He offers us a far greater adventure. Taking up our cross daily, following him wherever he might lead us, now, it may not sound that attractive. It may sound pretty much as dangerous as Shackleton's mission uh, was, but it's worth it, and success is guaranteed, and I can vouch for it, and many of us here can too. Jesus says the man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honour the one who serves me. Take up Jesus' invitation, hate your life, and serve and follow Jesus instead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to see Jesus, to trust him, to hate the life that we have the life where we put ourselves first and seek our own honour and glory uh, and instead to follow and serve Jesus. Uh, Lord, we pray that uh, as we do follow him uh, that you would be at work changing us, making us more like Jesus, making us braver, uh, more faithful, more obedient, more holy. Uh, for Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.